Howdy, folks, and welcome back to another episode of Meta Ideological Politics. What the hell do passwords, conspiracies, unsolved scientific problems, and mystical shamanic states all have in common? They're anti memes. Anti memes are the opposite of memes data entities high in information entropy that resist viral propagation and assimilation. While memes are easily spreadable, anti-memes are not. Memes have the propensity to hijack amygdalas and lock us into easily regurgitable narrative pathways. Anti-memes mystify and confound, straining our neocortexes and cognitive capacities. Memes are simple, obvious, and repeatable. Anti-memes are esoteric and opaque, representing the tacit, inarticulable, numinous realms of knowledge that defy explicable effability. You can't crunch anti-memes into a TikTok clip or a Reddit post, you can't plumb the sublime depths of Vajrayana Buddhism by merely browsing Wikipedia. So how do we connect this anti-memetic concept of the anti-meme to issues we talk about on this show, like politics, polarization, and systems transformation? What insights can we glean from the anti-meme that might help us navigate our age of outrage fueled by the race to the bottom of the brainstem? What can give complex and mystifying ideas like meta-ideological politics, a fighting chance against low-resolution limbic hijacking sound bites. And if nothing else, at least we now have an excuse for our measly YouTube presence and anemic subscriber base. We're anti-memetic. As Lehman says, memes flourish by being catchy, but sacredness is too cool, too cool for that shit. So with Lehman and my new friend TJ, we'll explore why MIP is too cool for that shit, too anti-memetically sexy to be adopted by mass consciousness, at least for now. Welcome, guys. Hey, happy to be here. Great. So TJ, let's start with you because you were the ones who reached out to me and introduced me to this very intriguing uh, and rather counterintuitive concept of the anti-meme. And I was then introduced to some Medium articles that you had written. So just tell us a little bit about yourself since you're new. You know, like, um, how did this concept become interesting to you? Yeah, um, so I'm a, I'm a book dealer. Um, I, I sell used books. And that also means like I'm a book hoarder and I am reasonably well read. I'm reading all the time. And so um, I have a steady diet of bizarre and weird ideas. Um, and uh, I came across the concept of anti-memes in Scott Alexander's blog, Slate Star. Um, or no, sorry, the, the uh, Astral Codex. And uh, he was, um, playing with the idea. And he also pointed to um, his source, which was a, a, um, a fictional kind of sci-fi story that had been posted online called There Is No Antimimetics uh, Division. And so it was through these two sources that I started to get a sense of the um, possibilities of the idea. And that I was also just kind of uh, amazed that no one had um, given it a more systematic treatment at that point. And so I felt I had an, an intuitive kind of um, draw to it. Um, and I felt like I could do a lot with it. So I just, I just took it and ran with it. Um, and that's, I started posting, yeah, those medium articles. I'd never written anything, you know, publicly, publicly before. I'm not, I've never been like historically, like theorizing publicly. This is my first shot at that. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's why I'm here. And before we have Layman jump in, TJ, maybe explain a little bit. I gave a little explanation of what uh, I thought an anti-meme was. 
uh, in the intro, but how would you describe, what is the, what is the uh, summary? How would you describe this concept? Yeah, so first of all, I mean, I like to, to push back against a kind of singular or literal um, interpretation of what an anti-meme is or, or could be. I, I, I prefer to keep it very broad, um, relational and relative. Um, I think, I mean, you, you nailed a lot of the core ideas, but I think what's important um, to keep in mind, especially in, in a meta-ideological context is that what is anti-memetic for in one context can be highly memetic in another. Um, and uh, so that, that's why I like to keep a kind of um, a really broad idea of the term and that it can be sort of ever-changing and what, what could be um, you know, anti-memetic today, what, what an idea that could um, kill a larger memeplex, let's say, could tomorrow suddenly make that same memeplex uh, thrive and flourish and outcompete other uh, memeplexes. Um, so yeah, it, it, I like to keep it open. I like to keep it broad. Um, I don't mind sort of paradoxical approaches to it as well. Uh, yeah, as, and like thinking of it uh, on a spectrum as well with memes. I think that's a crucial kind of approach is like um, some ideas can be more antimimetic than other ideas. Um, and again, they can always shift and, and change in a different context or a different uh, environment. I love that. We don't want to turn the anti-meme into a meme. Right, yeah. Not too, not not too much. Uh, yeah, uh, TJ reached out to me uh, and said some very nice things and pointed me toward his article. And it was such a fascinating way of organizing quite a lot of themes that I'm normally focused on around informational opacity and chaos and the subconscious and things like that, that I immediately took to it and understood it to be a, a playful field of inquiry that contains a lot of possibility for future exploration. And in trying to think how this comes together with meta-ideological politics, I think two things really stand out for me right away. One is that the kind of uh, collapse and polarization we're facing now has something to do with the way we relate to our information landscape, which is increasingly uh, untrustworthy. We have a corrupted information landscape, and that requires a skill set uh, by which human beings face the fact that they don't know what they're hearing or why they're hearing it. So there's a kind of a opacity there and a capacity to dwell in that opacity. And the other one, I think, is the ethical issue that uh, TJ pointed to in his recent article, highlighting the multinaturalism and the decolonial aspects of this, because the other, in order to appreciate the other, and also to appreciate what the other says about you as their other, you really have to have built up some kind of skill set whereby you can tolerate a lot of um, like mimetic hunger, a lot of that tendency that makes you want to immediately grab a very easy, efficient form of thinking or information and follow it down a pathway. You have to resist that in order to stay open to contrary and enriching perspectives. 
So the, the skill set that we develop in conjunction with anti-memes is a skill set we need very much for the current information environment and also for our ability to transcend uh, political and cultural polarizations. Yeah, I love that framing. You know, what comes to my mind is stereotyping, pigeonholing, ideologically labeling. These are all very mimetic, very trendy, very easy, very convenient. Low energy pathways a lot of us fall into, right? So the, I think of the anti-mimetic skill set when it comes to embracing and developing a healthy relationship with the ideological other that you articulated, TJ, in, in your recent article. That includes a tolerance for uncertainty and mystery. Uh, you know, being open to, to novelty, not getting locked into a certain uh, pattern that crystallizes and becomes calcified into kind of the us versus them mentality, right? So I think of all of these skills as kind of building our, you know, anti-memetic orientation, um, and they'll help us to really navigate these polarized waters much more skillfully. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would just add on to that that I think another way of kind of of emphasizing the kind the like like as layman put it the kind of ethical import of an antimimetics would be kind of like just by noting that the kind of unique situation we're in with technology where the speed and volume of information and memes is um is really profoundly high and we need to um, be, be like have a meta conscious awareness of that, how we're being kind of like brought into that flow of information and memes, um, how it how it uh, appeals to our biases, um, and that that's why I like this idea of thinking uh, of antimimetics also as a kind of um, inoculation or an antibody in a way against the this um, forceful flow of, 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 of mimet, highly mimetic content that's like kind of constantly coming at us. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking about when I wrote my article about it, uh, coming at it very much from the spiritual point of view, right. was this, I mean, the really interesting question here is, if memes are preserved and transmitted because they can easily latch on to uh, simple responses in human beings and sort of parasitize those things, why is it that we would preserve these patterns that don't do that very well or actively resist doing that, right? Why would we carry forward with us information patterns that resist our processing of those patterns? It's a very strange and provocative question. And there's a number of different uh, sources for why we would do that. But one of them, to go to TJ's point about inoculation that I was thinking about, was societies have a tendency to become corrupted in a certain way where they marginalize whole sets of affects. And among those affects are very healthy aspects of what it means to be a human being or a natural creature. Right. So if you were to uh, develop a society that had a bias against sexuality or against confidence or against humor or something like that, that becomes an ongoing weakness and detriment for your society. So you have to have a system in order to survive, whereby some of the people in that society take a stand on behalf of those marginalized affects, but they're difficult to get at and they have to sort of advertise that you can access those things at the same time ward off most people coming into that space, right? You create a kind of a counterfaction within the society that holds those things. So within say the space of a very, um, 
uh, hegemonic Christianity, you might have these subsects of Gnosticism or weird Christianity, or I think I pointed to the Hell's Angels, people who are advertising an off-putting message, a threshold you have to cross, so that they're not going to be completely crushed by that system, but they can nonetheless preserve something which seems off-limits to that system, which provokes that sense of being the opposite of the dominant meme system. So I think that's part of what this inoculation procedure involves. Absolutely. Yeah, I think another way to kind of state that is it's a sort of antimimetics represents a kind of timeless component of the cultural dialectic, I think might, might be another way to, to state that. It's like it's, it's the healthy negative and an awareness and of the necessity of the negative. Yeah, and society and biological evolution has to, we have to conceive it as having a motive to preserve mm -hmm. these forms of information which are otherwise rejected by whatever is the dominant mimetic consensus. It reminds me of a concept that Nassim Taleb talked about in his book, um, not anti-fragile, but it was the one I think after that on the, the hidden asymmetries in daily life or something, that was a subtitle. I forgot the main title. Uh, but he talked about this concept of like renormalization, I think is the word, where the minority group actually does have a disproportionate uh, amount of anti-fragile power or influence over the dominant culture. And he kind of gave a mathematical formula for how that works. But it, to me, I think what you're saying, Layman, too, there can be even an aspect, ironically, of anti-fragility built into the anti-memetic tribe, right? Uh, or Or that group that's running against the dominant cultural status quo uh, or you know uh, the ideological he hegemon of that time period or in that society yeah and we know that from our personal experience as well and, and also from our emerging natural sciences right that there's uh, even in physical exercise the experiences you don't want to have <laughs> well you know the, the the pain of the exercise right. or the pleasant aspect of something that you're uh, working with therapeutically or the um, possibility of innovation that comes from areas of your life or your mind or your feelings that you don't normally like to go into, that is extremely fertile and powerful territory for developing anti-fragility. And we have to make markers of that and pass those markers on. And because those markers have a survival and thrival value, they become highly prized, even though they operate in seemingly the opposite way to the normal replicator transmission of cultural information. Yeah, I think it, yeah, I mean, it, it also comes down to kind of, again, an ethical calling to, to preserving complexity in a way as well, you know, resisting the kind of stripping away and flattening of cultural and interpersonal complexity. Um, and I think that's a, another way it begins to relate to meta-ideological meta politics is that um, within the, the highly mimetic environment, um, we kind of get into this, this uh, polarization process and this simplification and this ideological simplification and reduction. And so in anti-mimetics looks to kind of like counteract that and, and, and preserve some complexity, some mystery, some contradictions, you know? Yeah, I appreciate the word complexity coming up here. Um, yeah. I'm a big fan of Stephen Wolfram's work with computational dynamics and this idea of computational equivalence, which is that any complex system 
only gets as complex as any other complex system. It can never get out ahead of it. It can never summarize or shortcut it, right? So there's a kind of a fundamental limitation in understanding the universe when it comes to complex systems that they will always seem complex to you. You'll never be able to sort of perfectly encapsulate them. And that understanding is what keeps you in contact with reality. And that's true in physics and computation, but it's also true socially with other people, right? So the idea that I know what you're all about. Oh, you're a liberal or, oh, you're a Trump voter, right? I've, I've eliminated right. complexity there. Yeah. In reality, you are full of complexity and I don't know all the places you're coming from and I can't tell all the places you're coming from. So I'm going to have to stand in front of you as I would stand in front of a mystery and tolerate the emotions and sensations that brings up in me in order to have some kind of mediatological social coherence. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that. Great. TJ, I want to bring in the information theory angle. Yeah. And talk a little bit about Shannon entropy and related concepts and how you kind of connect this idea of entropy with anti-memetics, which I think is also very much connected to this theme of complexity that we're working on. I guess I could start by just like a very uh, with this very brief and simple uh, definition of Shannon entropy. Um, in um, Claude Shannon's uh, information theory. He had this idea of, of information entropy as a it's, a, it's a technical measure of the amount of, of new information in a given uh, like message stream, let's say. So it's like, how much new knowledge are you receiving in a message or, or in a certain number of bits of information? How much of that is unpredictable? Um, and that measurement is the entropy of that information. And so I kind of, um, I take that idea, I, I use it in a, in a more, in a very mundane way to kind of um, speak generally about new information because I believe to go, again, to go back to like our kind of like uniquely mimetic um, moment, we're also in a uniquely highly entropic moment. Uh, in, 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 in information entropy. The, the internet has brought to the average person all kinds of new information. And that's a, that's, that's a ton of information entropy. So I think that's a really important thing um, to consider. Another way to kind of look at that is that um, I, I want to distinguish anti-memetics and, and, and anti-meme could be a highly entropic piece of information. It could be um, something new to you, something unknown. But what's really important is to distinguish that from, uh, from information which is just unpalatable to you, that you may know, you may innately already know or be familiar with, but it, it's not entropic at all. It's just distasteful or out of favor. And so I think that's a really important distinction to make um, within that context of the importance of information entropy and how we're in this uniquely highly entropic information environment. Yeah, the unpalatable part is fascinating to me. Right, yeah. A remark that uh, Slavoj Žižek made about Donald Rumsfeld, because Rumsfeld family gave this press conference where he said there's there's things we know, the known knowns, there's things we know that we don't know, and there's things we don't know that we don't know. 
And Zizek said, you know, from the Hegelian point of view, where and the psychoanalytic point of view, where's the unknown knowns? Where's the things we don't know that we do know, right? Things that are implicit, things that are in our subconscious. We act as if we know them, but we don't consciously access them. And part of that is because they are unpalatable to us and we won't right. allow them. So this one form of anti-memetics is to encode the information that we actually have, but can't access it as though we have it. And so that's a whole, that's different than the information that is uh, formally unintelligible or right. the information that we can't verify. This is information that we can verify, but for some reason it's opaque to us nonetheless. And that's a very important um, contributing factor in a lot of our social dynamics. Absolutely. Yeah, this gets to the distinction between tacit versus explicit knowledge. It was Carl Poliani, the economist, who, who coined the phrase tacit knowledge, and he described it as you, you always know more than you can say, right? So Nassim Taleb has this thing where he attacks Socrates and the Socratic method because just because people can, or just because people can't articulate something explicitly doesn't mean that they don't know it on a deeper level kind of like an animal or a baby or something you might have a certain knowledge of like what your mother's breast milk tastes like. You know that somatically, viscerally, tacitly, implicitly. You just don't have the verbiage to be able to articulate it yet, right? So we always know more than we can say and that there are certain mechanisms in society that we've lost that enabled the transmission of tacit knowledge. And so one of my favorite stories is, uh, is about uh, chicken sexing, right? So when little chicks are born, you don't know if it's a male or a female. And in America, they were having a really hard time discovering or being able to sort which were the male chicks and which were the female chicks. So they went to this school in Japan where uh, the, the Japanese chicken sexing master uh, basically stood behind the student. And so you'd pick up a little chick and if it was a male, he would say yes. And if it was a female, he would say no. And then you would sort it into the right category. He wouldn't tell you how explicitly to tell if it was a male or a female chick. So they pick up a chick, yes, no, no, yes. After a while, people got pretty good at intuitively telling which one was which, even though they couldn't uh, explicitly say how they were doing it. The same thing is true for uh, um, people recognizing whether the uh, bombers that were coming to London during World War II were British Spitfires or Nazi Luftwaffe Air Force. Right, and there, there were these guys in in London who would stand on roofs, looking at, at you know hearing the planes coming and seeing the bombers, and they're trying to train people to recognize if it was a British plane or a German plane, and they realized that these guys who did it really well couldn't say how they did it. There were just some people who were just really good at recognizing the difference, and they couldn't say why. Right, you can't codify that or systematize that and then teach it. There are some things that are tacit. So one thing that I find very interesting about when we think about systems and institutions is that Friedrich Hayek said that tacit knowledge is the knowledge everyone possesses about their own local economic conditions, how much money they have, the supply demand balances in their current economic context and, and uh, organization and verticals and so forth. And that in order for this kind of tacit knowledge to be shared widely, it needs to be mediated by a market system using price signals. So price signals are a kind of market mechanism that transforms each individual economic agent's tacit knowledge into highly codified and abstracted pieces of information that can be diffused very rapidly that enables economic coordination and efficiency, right? So there's kind of, there are systemic mechanisms that transform 
the tacit, inarticulable, complex antimimetic knowledge of each individual into highly codified, highly transmissible, highly diffusible forms of knowledge that can be shared and disseminated widely, right? So one thing I think about a lot too is how there's always a kind of anti-mimetic dimension, I think, at play, both in ourselves and in society at large, a kind of collective subconscious. And there are also mediating mechanisms that allow the translation of the anti-mimetic and they're consolidated into the mimetic, which gives them their viral diffusibility. But you, it always comes at the cost of losing the contextual richness and complexity of keeping things tacit. So how do we think about you know, all of these things, striking a balance, right? How do we mediate between them? How do we go back and forth when necessary? Yeah, well, just to kind of um, counterpose to the to market dynamics, I mean, what jumps to my mind, are, of course, is like aesthetics, art, and, uh, you know, and spirituality, or, you know, completely different ways of um, facilitating and, um interacting with the antimimetic in a way that preserves more complexity, right? Um, that uh, uh, tends to um, uh, prioritize the tacit in the inexplicable. And, you know, it, it, the, the, the spiritual and the aesthetic, that's sort of, that's sort of their thing, right? I mean, that, that, that's sort of what they're after in a lot of ways. And I think, I think it's, really, uh, it's, it's really within a market context, um, particularly a dominant, you know, sort of capitalist free market context that those, um, those antimimetic realms get sort of subsumed and the complexity gets like kind of caught into this like flattening uh, cycle, right? Um, so that's, I guess that's my, like, kind of where I go to immediately is sort of like, you have market, and then you have art and aesthetics, but we're kind of like, in this market dominated realm, I would say, right? Uh, yeah, there's a very interesting question about how we would set up collective systems that harness more tacit knowledge. Mm -hmm. One of the things anti-memetic study can point to. I have some problems with Hayek because there's a lot of information we each don't have locally, even unconsciously. We have cognitive biases. There are all kinds of externalities that are almost anti-memetically outside of the calculation of the price signals. And probably there are whole ranges of quantification that would have to be added into the price signals before they did anything like what he's talking about. But that notion that we could add in more things and that we could set up some kind of collective machinery that works in tandem with the knowledge we don't know that we have is fascinating, right? I think unconscious signaling can be an important component of generating a we space. I think there's a kind of surrealistic skill set whereby we can uh, translate what we're receiving into irrational or unknown areas in ourselves and also try to express from those areas and that we can build a skill but we can build a capacity in that area that makes our irrational gut instinct a little smarter than it might otherwise be uh, i also think of things like voting systems right one of the things in 
a notion like the wisdom of crowds that makes a difference between a crowd collapsing into a mob that's dumber than the individuals or rising into some kind of collective swarm that's smarter than the individuals are a series of protocols that sort of gate the information. And one of the most famous protocols is simply secret ballot in general elections, right? We're putting a limitation on what people can know about each other's information. And we're preserving that as valuable. We're kind of passing it on as an anti-meme precisely because it allows a greater fidelity in the production and collation of the collective intelligence, right? We know psychologically that if, if people see what signal you're sending in the election, you distort that signal automatically to take into account future possible social effects. So that signal is not upregulated into the collective decision unless there's some kind of membrane that makes that signal as if unknown to the other members of your social population. Oh man, so much to build on there. So a couple of things. One, going back to what you're seeing, TJ, I think this is the critique of the culture industry mm. where the artistic, right. the tacit, the anti-memetic is effectively colonized by highly consolidated price signals and economic capitalist modes of production. Right. You can critique from various angles, right? We can think of it as the economic sphere kind of running roughshod over the cultural and spiritual and religious sphere, but it's also this kind of subsumption of the anti-memetic into the highly memetic. Right. Uh, I think when I think about what we were saying later in terms of institutional structures that kind of deal with the uh, the kind of transformation of the anti-memetic into the memetic or vice versa, right? How do we preserve the facilitation and transmission of tacit knowledge, especially intergenerationally? So two things I think about, one is this traditional guild society with kind of a apprenticeship relations where people in the community can learn the skills, not only explicitly of how to be a carpenter or how to be a tailor and so forth, but those kind of close relationships that start at a young age also facilitate um, more of that contextual richness that's lost than by kind of abstracted, you know, kind of like taking an online class, for example, or something these days. The second part is religion and the kind of the whole spiritual idea of transmission, right? like Zen transmission or initiation, right? Where you're kind of initiated into the realm of the esoteric that usually contains a kind of a prolonged process of initiation and, you know, kind of going through it ritualistically. But in that process, there's a kind of transmission of, of the tacit and of the anti-memetic. Uh, when it comes to the wisdom of crowds, yeah, the, the technical economic term of what you're saying about the kind of herd mentality problem that, that destroys crowd wisdom is called the information cascade, right? So a bunch of people glob onto a mimetic idea that's bullshit and people, it becomes a kind of collective groupthink. Uh, people start, they lose the ability to make uh, discerning judgments in, in terms of their own decentralized local knowledge. It all gets kind of consolidated into this blob that creates a kind of herd effect. And so that's what I really like about some of your work with the like secret ballot idea, Layman, right? You know, the um, Harvard attorney, Cass Sunstein, the nudge guy, he, I like his heuristic to think about when things should be transparent and when some opacity should be maintained. And his, his distinction is uh, the inputs should be dark, the outputs should be transparent. So if we're deciding on whether we should impeach Trump or not, uh, most of the Republicans voted to not impeach Trump, because if they did, everyone would know that and they would get canceled by their base. But if that was a secret ballot or the same thing in Russia with Putin, how many Russians and how many Russian oligarchs and so forth really support Putin, right? Probably, probably less than is indicated. Uh, but, and if we had some kind of mechanism to keep the inputs to those decisions dark, 
but the outputs would be transparent. The output would be the result of the inputs and deliberation process for everyone to know. Uh, that would be a more effective system. So it kind of pushes back on this idea that everything should be transparent and visible to everyone, and we should have cameras and recording devices all over DC and so forth. Right. So those are just a few things that uh, came to mind. Yeah, I, I I'd like to add on to that as well. Um, I think. Um, an important thing to bring up here is when we're when we're talking about facilitating complexity with with social uh, structures and mechanisms, it's important to distinguish between what is decentralized in form and what is decentralizing in function. And I think um, uh, in in Austrian school, you know, free market, for example, it's this decentralized form, but it is its function is highly centralizing. It is this centripetal force that pulls kind of the whole, the whole social reality into it and then outputs this kind of like market optimized construct from, from its inputs, right? That's sort of what a market, that's what a free market does. Um, and so I think it, lo it looks decentralized, but it's actually this like incredibly hegemonic force and so that's that we, we we can kind of like port that over now you know to to networks generally decentralized networks generally the internet you know there's this um, this it has this sort of utopic decentralized form but we see again and again it's so easily accessed this centralizing centripetal force on the social so I think that's an important distinction to make between between. Um, decentralized form and function. Yeah, the uh, platform capture seems mm. to uh, right. on a lot of our decentralized systems. I thought of Marxism, which in principle should be a decentralized function, but in practice has been a centralized. Right, right. Function. It's only nominally decentralized. Right. Uh, you mentioned Zen transmission, Ryan, and so I wanted to bring up something because uh, I've mentioned the koan is kind of like a an intense example of an anti-meme because it's it the whole point of it is that you don't understand it <laughs> and you're supposed to spend time not understanding it but there's a particular zen koan that i like to mention that can operate between what i would say is the tacit knowledge aspect of this and maybe the formerly undecidable aspect of this you might have heard me say it before so the guy comes to visit the Zen adept and he takes him in front of two students who are doing a meditation. They look the same. They're meditating, appearing to be the same. They're following the same instruction. They get up, they roll up their mats and they leave. And the master says to the visitor, one of them has it, one of them doesn't. So on the one hand, he's pointing to some uh, non-specified tacit knowledge that's embodied in one of them and not in the other one. But at the same time, he's problematizing the difference between sameness and difference itself, uh, which is kind of formally, uh, informationally opaque. You can't, that's not a secret hidden piece of tacit knowledge. That's something you absolutely are never going to get the answer on. So there's these, these two complementary aspects of anti-memetics that I want to keep in play in the discussion. Yeah, like that, I, I, I think of the term, uh, anti-memetics, I think of as almost like a meta-heuristic also, in a way, it's a it's a kind of um, it's a heuristic that allows space and room for um, more practical, applicable heuristics towards making towards sense making. You know, it's keeping us open 
um, to these contradictions, to these complexities. I like, I like, I like uh, yeah, meta heuristic. I think it's a good kind of term to bring in here. Yeah, that plays very well with the description I gave, like, because I'm sort yeah. of standing for this integration surplus model of religion. And when I tried to lay it out as an anti-memetic system in my article, I thought, well, we could describe these different internal information systems as basically kind of, of meme systems or meme chains, right? Where you, you have a thought and it leads to the next thought to the next thought, or you have an emotional reaction leads to the next one leads to the next one. And so each of these wants to sort of make themselves optimized, wants to make themselves more efficient and proceed down those learned chains of associations. And you have multiple systems doing this. In order to become a more whole being, in order to hold these systems in check, you have to create some kind of resonance or splicing between these systems. And the systems will resist that because their self-optimization replication pattern will want to go down the normal chain. So you have to apply some kind of additional effort to try to make your thoughts and emotions and physical responses, for example, fit together as a more whole being. And that means you have to um, practice the skills associated with anti-memetics, and you have to be triggered to do that by some kind of anti-meme that represents the idea that it's good to do that. But through all of that practice, you get that result TJ was just pointing to of, of being held open for richer and more complex and more complex experiences of reality. Yeah, this makes me think about how the memetic to anti-memetic spectrum maps onto the left-right spectrum, if at all. So let's explore that for a moment. So one thing we were emailing about TJ was uh, this idea of conservatism as utilizing uh, low entropy heuristic registers to manage high entropy environments, right? right? So the inherited means and practices of tradition, of religion, of ritual, of established social norms, practices, customs, and institutions uh, in, for the conservative are the, the convenient way uh, because of the content of these heuristics and the fact that they have had memetic value are the best bet we have to managing the uncertainty, chaos, and complexity of novel, highly informationally entropic environmental context. Take it away. Okay, yeah, no, um, and so I guess opposed to that, I would, I would say you could, um, you could look at a more, you could categorize a more progressive um, leftist ideology as having a higher uh, hermeneutic capacity for in information entropy. And that is not, um, that doesn't just mean a, like, like, a, like a tolerance um, for, for inf information entropy or the antimimetic. It actually comes down to a, um, like a generative relationship with entropy. It's like a creation of entropy. Um, this, um, this idea that, um, the traditional ways are not enough to kind of like deal with and interpret um, the kind of ever emerging new reality we're facing. And so we have to, um, in order to meet this entropy, we have to kind of create information entropy with it. Um, I think that's, those are the kind of two, two sides to that. Yeah, I, there's, a, there's a strong argument that uh, to be conservative is to appreciate complexity and opacity in certain ways, right? If I try to point to a higher conservative, I think of Nassim Taleb, I think of Nietzsche, I think of Edmund Burke, people who are pointing to the, the complicated richness of a world that we know that we don't understand, and therefore we need to use these historically vetted processes, yeah. and we need to be 
very cautious about intervening, whether it's intervening in the climate or intervening in the birth process or whatever it is, they're, they're aware of the complexity and they don't wanna get involved. And that's a classic understanding of the conservative. But I think it's a little bit short-sighted, you know, even though you can say, oh, the liberals tend to think they can do a top-down imposition of mimetic knowledge. Right. What I think is these are actually two different ways of dealing with what they don't know. Mm. So when you say the classic uh, argument between Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke about the French Revolution went something like this. Edmund Burke would say, look, you want to overthrow the monarchy, but you don't understand all the things that have gone into building up this society like this. And if you think you're just going to topple it and make something better, you're, you're kidding yourself because the number of complex variables that generated this are unknown to you. Chesterton's fence style. But Thomas Paine's rebuttal is, things are so horrible right now, we've got nothing to lose. We might as well step into the opening of the unknown, right? So these are two different relationships to what's fundamentally unknown, right? You go, if someone says, hey, should we implement modern monetary theory? Well, there's a real conservative tendency to say, well, I've never seen it tried. I don't know if it's going to work. We should stick with what we know. But the converse opinion is, look, things are so shitty and their shittiness is accelerating. We've got nothing to lose. Let's accept what we don't know and try that out. So I would think of them as two reciprocal styles of facing uh, sense of pattern information. I think there's also a tacit versus explicit dimension in here too, right? So Roger Scruton, legendary conservative philosopher said, conservative intellectualism is having reasons for not having reasons. It's about feeling doing the right thing, right? It's about being embodied, it's about going with your instinct. It's about relying on the heuristics and practices we've, that have been historically vetted as Lehman said, right? I think the, of the leftist tradition, the critical tradition, the, the Marxist critical theory tradition as trying to make the tacit explicit, because if you don't do that, then you can have epistemic injustice or hermeneutic injustice, right? You can have oppressive institution structures and cultural norms that need to be brought to light, consciously critiqued and deconstructed, right? Um, because if we don't do that, if we don't bring the background to the foreground consciously, then those oppressive mechanisms will continue to operate and have very destructive effects on people. So there's a journey of taking the tacit and going to the explicit, or it, like these days, it's like calling out crypto-fascist dog whistle politics, right? Ah, what you said here uh, is actually embedded or laden with a whole bunch of racist shit that needs to be called out consciously. The conservative kind of pushback is that the leftist ideologies that are supposed to be doing explicit critique and making the task explicit are themselves explicitly very dangerous, very destructive, very totalitarian ideologies themselves. And in the process of trying to make the unknowable conscious, you do violence to the anti-mimetic unknowable. That, that's my uh, titanium man reframe of the culture war. <laughs> I've, I've played with that, but at the moment I'm leaning towards seeing them as two different modes of handling the tacit and that the tacit information and the unknown is overlaid by levels of rationalization. So that the conservative might say, uh, they're basically, they're saying, look, there's all kinds of things we don't understand. And so we should keep doing things in the inherited way because we don't understand the complexity of this. But they're rationalizing that by saying it says so in the Quran. Uh, the progressives are actually suggesting that we try some things that we don't understand and don't know what they're going to do. And they're rationalizing that by saying we've converted the tacit into the explicit and we know it's going to turn out better. But they don't. 
that's an overlay of rationalization, just like saying it's in the Quran. And what they're really saying is, we don't understand, but we think we should try it. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you that in practice, I think that is de facto how it's ended up today. Yeah, TJ, I want to bring in this aspect of epistemic injustice or hermeneutic injustice that you recently uh, alluded to in one of your articles. I wonder if you can make that connection. Yeah, no, I mean, that was an idea I picked up from you. I mean, I think, um, and it's, you know, you um, kind of brilliant, brilliantly launched into it in a, in a different uh, um, meta-ideological politics podcast. Um, I think that um, what this comes down to is the idea of epistemic injustice is we can kind of look at that and let's say we can frame it with um, within like patriarchy. Okay, where where within patriarchy, like within a high, highly patriarchal society, we may not have the language and words to even describe a complex like female experience about the world. And um, I think one of the sort of go-to examples here is, um, it, it, what was it? Um, it was uh, from what is what what, what fickle frickle? Amanda um, Fricker. Fricker, sorry, Fricker. It was uh, like domestic abuse, right? Wasn't that sort of the 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 term that was? Am I right? Is that yeah? What, and sexual you, sexual harassment was a big sexual thing. harassment, right, right, right? And and just like these these phenomena out there in the world that aren't aren't sort of given we can't speak them yet because we we live in this way that's kind of dominated by this this mimetic patriarchal complex and so that's an epistemic injustice it's an inability to kind of like collectively mentally access these ideas and 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 and, and bring them into language and so the justice the, the hermeneutical justice is to kind of um perceive them uh, bring not just to perceive them, but to bring in that minoritarian uh, perspective into the larger kind of epistemic project of a society, so that they can give voice and give language to reality. And so that's how we then we access these other latent injustices, as you've as you've called them as well, um, such as uh, sexual assault or you know domestic abuse, that kind of thing. Um, uh, and I think the way the way we can kind of like tie that back in is that that is a process of ultimately of of confronting the anti-mimetic and 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 making it kind of collectively mimetic in the name of justice. But it's also the creation of the like neologisms, these these new terms. This is a creation of information entropy. We're actually bringing more information into the world and making it a more entropic environment. And so that I think is, again, how we can kind of tie that into this like left, this left right divide, this um, interest in um, not just facilitating the entropic, but kind of actively embracing it and generating more information as a means of a richer, more complex uh, interaction with reality. Is that, I, I hope that makes sense. It's fantastic, yeah. Uh, there's like two layers in a way when we come to things like say sexual abuse or intercultural relations. And one is we just don't have the information 
And the other is we don't like hearing the information. And I, you know, sort of pointed to the Sean as one of the genealogical origins of anti-memetics right. in a number of right. ways. And one of the uh, common things people point to shamans as doing is running kind of intertribal interference, right? That they're able to meet across tribes, recognize something about each other. And they have a very high tolerance for the uh, strangeness and unsettling quality of others who are different than themselves. And to some degree, they can teach that as a skill set to the tribe. Uh, and it's not just between, you know, little formalized groups of tribes or people that are ethnically different. It's all these different kinds of fault lines where we feel triggered by something that is offensive to us about the information coming in from the other, right? It might be that somebody starts talking about domestic abuse and you just feel upset. You don't want to hear about it for some reason, right? So there's, a, there's an inherent shamanic function to either stepping in as an individual or having a cultural apparatus set up, an anti-memetic apparatus set up to say, hey, when that happens, that's good. You should pay extra attention to those places where you feel like you're not interested in receiving that information. I think that's part of what we need collectively to regenerate, playing on that ancient shamanic pattern, but setting it up as part of the cultural ethos we have now, and using anti-memetics as a marker for our capacity to uh, transcend those information boundaries and make ourselves mutually enriched and more cohesive as a culture. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting what you said, TJ, about in one sense, making something latent and implicit culturally explicit. So a meme that can now be diffused and shared so that a problem can be addressed like uh, hashtag me too, for example, very codified, very abstracted, very diffusible. Um, in some sense, you've, you've reduced the, the entropy of that particular problem you're trying to solve, but have contributed to the overall entropy of the right. collective information ecosystem. Yes, absolutely. So depending on what scale or what boundary we're looking at, something could be in one context, a reduction of anti-memetic property, and then contribute to an overall ecosystem of overwhelming informational uh, entropy at a higher scale. Right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, yeah, I think that's really important to keep in mind is that um, I think we're, I mean, we're very much faced with a kind of our, re, our reality now is, is just this constant generation of information entropy. And I think that the, the real test is not to approach the, approach that entropy, um, with a, as a reactionary or as from a place of fear or trying to reduce so much complexity to simplify it. Um, I think it, it comes down to being able to really facilitate and work with complexity and, and information entropy. Um, that I think is really kind of part of the ethical import within antimimetics, you know, is this idea that we have there's there's a calling to to embrace the complexity and to bring and to sort of bring it forth you know i, I see it that way yeah it's important for people not to lose sight of the fact that entropy and information are always coupled together right the, um, one of the definitions of entropy is the number of different ways the microstates of a system could be arranged and have the system look the same 
So they're, they're coupled. The missing yep. information is proportional to some information that is presented. And uh, that's interesting in terms of the information landscape we have now, because we have more information than we ever had. And yet the value of that information is losing its significance. Mm. So if our brains are built for a kind of paleolithic situation where you occasionally hear cultural signals and can process them, great. In that case, those mimetic signals cut down on the entropy we're facing. In the current situation where you're facing a massive onslaught of highly dubious information at a greater degree than any of our ancestors ever adapted to handle, then those incoming memes start to function almost as if they were anti-memes. The more information you receive, the more entropic you become, the less informed you become, right? Mm -hmm. The seem Taleb point is the person who checks the news more often is often less informed than the person who checks the news less often. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I want to connect this notion to Ross Ashby's idea of a requisite variety from cybernetics, right? So Ross Ashby famous, famously said, only variety destroys variety. It's also been stated only variety absorbs variety. So what he meant by requisite variety in the cybernetics context is that in order for a system to be viable, right, which means that any kind of system can maintain its coherence over time and kind of... Um, adapt to oncoming threats or challenges from its environment, you need to have the requisite amount of tools in your toolkit to deal with the amount of challenges that are coming your way, right? It's a, it's a relatively intuitively uh, simple concept when you think about it, right? Like if you don't have enough conceptual distinctions and tools in your toolkit to recognize and address the problems, either because you have hypocognition or hypercognition, then uh, you're going to be overwhelmed by the problem space and you can no longer be a viable system. So informationally, there, there's a um, great literature on uh, the processes of codification and abstraction by Max Boisot, right? So codification is the first step in terms of having enough requisite conceptual distinctions to adequately parse and label phenomena that genuinely contain information. So if information as uh, Bateson described is the difference that makes a difference, you have to have enough categories to capture the differences that really do make a difference. So uh, codification is a first step in terms of uh, differentiating different concepts. So you have to have a proliferation of the adequate amounts of categories for, to classify genuinely different or distinct phenomena. After that initial kind of opening up of concepts and distinctions, you now have to do integration or abstraction, right? So if information is the difference that makes a difference, then abstraction is removing the difference that makes no difference, right? It's about finding the correlations between two things and integrating them into a higher order abstraction so that you reduce the processing load, you economize a little bit, right? So everyone uses abstractions, narratives, heuristics, mental models, et cetera, to try to somehow consolidate the overwhelming complexity. So, you, so codification and abstraction have to be done consciously and together, right? If you have only abstractions, you have what Jordan Peterson calls low resolution ideologue abstractions. Uh, you don't have enough requisite distinctions to capture the complexity and then consolidate them, right? Uh, if, you, if you have too much codification, you can have a kind of postmodern, um, what is the word, Wayman? Uh, perspectival crazy, what? Tival madness? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. You're, you're, there's not enough reintegrations or abstractions that are created. You just have an endless proliferation of distinctions, <laughs> right? So, so I guess my question would be, uh, oh yeah, and also say that when, once you go through that process of abstraction, 
that that reduces the um, amount of uh, Shannon entropy. Codification reduces physical entropy. And then knowledge, right? So if we go from data to information to knowledge, knowledge reduces cognitive entropy. And then if you want to go one step more and get, get a little woo-woo, you can talk about wisdom, right? <laughs> Reducing spiritual entropy. I just made that up. So I, 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 how do we think about having the right abstraction? Because no human brain can hold all of the crazy complexity. So how do we think about strategically having the right abstractions uh, to select for um, so that we can adequately process the um, all of the informational entropy out there and have kind of a requisite variety uh, without um, falling into this kind of oversimplification problem that we're seeing today. That's a, that's a great question. <laughs> let me um, let me think about that one. How I can uh, let me just say yeah. let me just say this. So one criticism I've gotten a lot for and meta ideological politics, and I think it's a totally fair criticism. So I'm kind of processing it out loud with you guys is that it's so anti-mimetic, there are no constraints to the sense-making process. Like what, like, what are you guys doing here? It's like, you know, like other, other systems of, of you know, po like political philosophies and so forth have more predefined boundaries and constraints about how they're looking or interpreting, how they're looking at the world they're interpreting it. So when people ask me that question, I don't have any kind of systematic answer other than just kind of a subjective, I try to be open-minded and study things I'm interested in the most granular detail and retain as much nuance and complexity possible. But that's a very vague, you know, description of what we're trying to do here. Classic problem for integrative level philosophy, right? So if we're going to say that everybody's correct, um, <laughs> how are you going to find the territory that you're thinking about? But and so Wilbur's faced this too. Where you go, well, nobody's completely correct and nobody's absolutely incorrect. You're defining a specific space actually by doing that, right? So if you're gonna say we're doing meta-ideological politics, first of all, you're putting anybody who's just doing ideological politics out of bounds, right? Anybody who only has one reality tunnel on the system is not included in meta-ideological politics. So it has a specific gradient, right? There is a definite cutoff. It's just different than the, you know, it's an orthogonally distinct form of cutoff to the ones people are used to using. I think what I might um, bring to that is the idea of um, context and application of what meta-ideological meta politics is trying to do. I see it very much as um, its value is um, created by our, 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 our like very polarized environment, this very polarized context. And so I, I see what you're doing as a kind of um, an answer to that and working, working within that context. And I think um, out, outside of that context, outside of that, that need that I see, I mean, I don't, yeah, like what, what would meta-ideological politics do? I don't know. But right now it's something we really need. You know, so I think it comes down to kind of recognizing the problems that need to be solved. Yeah, so that I, I think, yeah, that's that's one way to look at that. It's like a, a basic kind of like um, problem solution framework makes it far more mimetic, I think, as well. Yeah, I think the the level of constraint in this kind of discourse is actually much higher than normal, right? Because you're looking mm -hmm. for 
uh, a solution set that has to obey a much uh, narrower set of parameters because it has to solve all of these different things at the same time, right? A solution that only deals with somebody's view or somebody's ideology or one part of the problem, that's unacceptable from the point of view of meta-ideological politics, right? So you're setting a higher bar for what the effective solutions are. Therefore, you're imposing a much greater constraint on what the possible uh, task space and solution set is. So I think you're actually being much more rigorous than they are. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great reframe. <laughs> yeah, so I, want, I wanted to touch on um, this idea of mutually exclusive memes hmm. in the culture war and how that connects to uh, anti-memetics. Okay, um, I'll start by kind of giving um, one sense of what uh, anti-meme means to me is like memes that kind of like cancel each other out like you can have um you know liberalism and fundamentalism are are anti-memetic like they they're they cannot tolerate the other and so that's i think a way of a good way a, a good term for kind of framing um and sort of leading into the hyper polarization we're looking at now the way the 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 cultural war is kind of has sort of ratcheted up into this this like accelerating sort of feedback loop of of more and more polarization more extremist uh discourse um more um like i talk about in my becoming meme piece like it's this sort of it just feels like this sort of um a series of ultimatums as opposed to like a real a real discourse so yeah that that's kind of where that's how i use the term uh, one way i use the term antonyms is like to kind of look at this idea of mutually exclusive memes and do you mean the mutually exclusive memes together or clashing together are, are anti-memetic yeah just that they 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 are they are memetically incompatible i would say yeah so like they're they're relationally anti-memetic like liberalism ah, is, got it, got liber, it. liberalism is highly memetic fundamentalism is is also memetic but they are anti-memetic in relation to one another that that to me is actually my favorite description of mip i think i've heard it's oh okay holding, yeah. it's, it's the relational uh, anti-memeticness of holding completely dichotomous meme sets. Like I talk about Marx and Hayek all the time, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. I talk yeah. about Roger Scruton and critical theory all the time in the same, same sentence and, and harnessing insights from all of them simultaneously. There's a kind of emergent anti-memetic property. Yeah, go ahead, Lenny. The, uh, the degree of the tension between competing memetic networks um, the intensity of that varies a lot with psychological and physiological factors, right? So there's a classic argument from integral theory and spiral dynamics that all of the first tier mimetic tribes uh, are essentially intolerant to all the other ones. They think you have to convert to their basic underlying premises first before any problems can get solved. And the second tier networks uh, disagree with that. Uh, and that's true to some extent, but where people are... Um, humanly mature and have a little bit of training in tolerating ambiguity there's a much greater ability to withstand those right i grew up on an 
an island with a lot of very rural people and a lot of very educated hippies. And they, there was a grudging acceptance, right? There wasn't some kind of exaggerated, hypermediated polarization, right? So there's these other factors like what's the media doing? What are the financial incentives? What's the ability of the body to tolerate ambiguity? Uh, and what's the mind's ability to uh, flexibly operate in uh, incoherent space, at least temporarily? And these factors largely determine whether or not these memes that can't get together could actually exist fairly well next to each other or not, even if you know, there's an absence of some elaborate metacognitive capacity to take them all into the same umbrella. I think a big part of this is also developing the emotional intelligence to oscillate between dichotomous structures or patterns of feeling. Right, uh, because I think a, a lot of us are very intellectually oriented. We're oriented toward, oriented towards abstractions, and so oftentimes I'll change my mind on an issue, not by emotively grokking the other side's feelings, but by understanding higher order conceptual abstractions that allow me to take another perspective. Right, so I'm I'm less likely to be uh, convinced of the value of. Uh, neoconservative American exceptionalism through listening to someone from the Bush administration rant about their ideology, I'm more likely to be converted by understanding the mathematics of game theory and how deterrence works at an international scale. But I think for a lot of people, though, the, the emotional valence associated with different memes uh, is probably one of the biggest drivers of their um, kind of locking in to just a kind of a monocrop worldview or ideology, right? So I, I think a lot about how being able to not only like the phrase take another perspective still has a very kind of mental connotation to it, right? like a perspective, it's like stepping into another abstraction. But I think a big part of it is emotionally feeling into another thing and then developing higher order rationalizations out of that feeling tone. That comes first for me, right? And so the fact that I can do certain amount of uh... Uh, intellectual sounding noises out of my mouth <laughs> makes me come across in a certain way. But what I'm fundamentally doing with people is um, appreciating some kind of human inner shine about them. And that vets the possible interpretations I can come up with. So if I come up with an interpretation of them that doesn't take into account that I fundamentally appreciate and enjoy something about them as a human being, then I throw out that idea. And I end up only with these ideas left over that go along with the embodied emotional quality. And I think that's one of the things that we were talking earlier about the, the role of the shaman when they have status in the society is to partly mediate between these groups that wouldn't otherwise get along with each other's idea sets. And that's expressed in all kinds of like Dharma traditions where you have to cultivate a certain emotional disposition toward other human beings, whether that's loving kindness, whether that's looking for their inner light, whatever it is, that you fundamentally in an embodied and emotional way take them on board as being somehow similar to you or as coming from a place of value that you can deeply appreciate. And then that's the thing that determines which are the correct intellectual positions or not. Yeah, I, 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 I love that. And I will add that I see part of the, um, the antimimetic sort of like praxis as being able to see kind of beyond the mimetic constructs that, that make up a person, right? And see kind of see beyond, see that for the kind of like historical construct that it is 
see beyond that to like the living, breathing, complex thing that's there beneath those memes. There's a quote I would love to bring in here um, that I, 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 I added to my, my most recent piece um, that I think uh, s that speaks to a lot of this very well. Um, this kind of the confrontation with between um, the confrontation with like what I would call the ideological other, um, you know, um, and it's a quote. It's a quote from Michel Foucault, but it actually it's this. It actually also contains a quote from from Borges, and so um, so it's two of my very favorite writers together in in one quote. And so and it and it just speaks um, to me. It speaks so much to meta meta ideological politics. So I'm gonna go ahead and read that. Um, so this is uh, this is Foucault. This, this book first arose out of a passage in Borges, out of the laughter that shattered as I read the passage, all the familiar landmarks of my thought, our thought that bears the stamp of our age and our geography, breaking up all the ordered services and all the planes with which we are accustomed to tame the wild profusion of existing things and continuing long afterwards to disturb and threaten with collapse our age-old distinction between the same and the other. This passage quotes a certain Chinese encyclopedia in which it is written that, okay, and now he's, and now Foucault is quoting uh, Borges. Animals are divided into A, belonging to the emperor, B, embalmed, C, tame, D, suckling pigs, E, sirens, F, fabulous, G, stray dogs, H, included in the present classification, I, frenzied, J, innumerable, K, drawn with a very fine camel hair brush, L, etc., M, having just broken the water pitcher, N, that from a long way off look like flies. Okay, and so now Foucault says, in the wonderment of this taxonomy, the thing we apprehend in one great leap the thing that by means of the fable is demonstrated as the exotic charm of another system of thought is the limitation of our own, the stark impossibility of thinking that. And that's, that's Foucault um, in his introduction, I believe, uh, to the order of things. I just love that quote. I think it really sums up to me, uh, you know, the connection between etymemetics and meta-ideological politics. I, I love it. It reminds me of uh, pataphysics and a number of French intellectual traditions about sort of uh, nonsense versions of systemization. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of that these imaginative alternative categorization systems are, are anti-memetic to a lot of people. They're inherently repugnant to a lot of people who think of themselves as up-to-date rational thinkers. They just don't want to hear anything about that. Uh, and I think that goes to the point that anti-memetics hold space for the fact that our categories might be insufficient. Mm, yeah, That's really right. important thing to keep in mind because our categories enable or restrict everything we can come up with, not only intellectually, but socially. And one of the areas where uh, our categories run into trouble 
famously is this area of like UFOs or anomalous phenomenon, right? And the interesting thing there is not whether someone's had an experience or what they believe about the government or extraterrestrials or anything like that. The interesting thing is it's a phenomenon that doesn't seem to obey the distinctions between subjective or objective or singular or collective. It just jumps around, right? Even on a Ken Wilber map of the world, it violates all of the boundary categories. And it puts you up against the limit of our cognitive capacity to make sense of the world, which is something that anti-memes in their most intense form are pointing to. And when it becomes a real practice of voluntarily trying to touch in with an absolute conundrum, something that takes you to the limit of what cognition can do, then you are exercising your metacognitive capacity to be an intentional being. And that's a strength that you can then use to think outside your own categories, to modify your own reactions, and to essentially become the kind of metacognitive citizen who needs a meta-ideological politics to describe their approach to social existence. That's beautiful. Yeah, it reminds me, I think, I think it was Derrida, it might have been Foucault, but I think it was Derrida, it's one of his leading inquiries was, how do I think the non-thought? Mm. Right, it's a very kind of colonic, you know, anti-memetic right. question. Yeah, and and what you were saying, Layman, reminds me of the you know our logo that we've made for this podcast. Right, it's it's the Zen uh, Enso with the American flag in the middle. It is itself a very anti-memetic image, where right? it's kind of containing uh, the union of form of the uh, United States, <laughs> nation state of the the U.S. and emptiness, right, of absolute emptiness, non-form, um, and kind of and kind of leaning into that polarity, right. Um, something just popped up for me, Ryan, which is the, the notion that the polarized politics accompanies a kind of society of narcissism, where everyone feels entitled to their own reality and their own beliefs. There's a certain sense in which that is a rejection of any sense that there's a cognitive limitation. Like, um, if there's a sign, if there's an idea that says, hey, something is impossible, it's impossible for you and you have to understand that there's a limit to what's thinkable, right? That's, that's a pressure that you can take onto yourself and it refines your thinking. But if you reject that, if you reject the intense anti-meme, then you're left in a completely fluid space where everything is thinkable, right? You could just adapt to any view you want as rational or irrational as it is, as factual or unfactual as it might be. Right, you're totally at liberty in a completely flexible relativistic universe if there's no boundary to what's an acceptable form of thought. So one of the things an anti-meme does is hold the space of a boundary. It says there is something fundamentally impossible. It doesn't mean you can't interact with it, but it means that something is going to impose a constraint upon the field of possibilities. You don't get to all just separate into your own realities and tell yourself that you can believe whatever you want. There's some pushback from the very nature of reality and cognition itself. And the representative of that is the anti-meme in its intense form. I love that. I love, yeah, the unification and the connection via absence and difference and the negative. I think, yeah, I, I, I love that. I've always, I, yeah, I've always thought of anti-memetics as part of that, um, that kind of Hegelian movement in that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, when you were saying that, I just thought of old maps and, the, you know, here there be dragons. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Very good. Great. Yeah, I wanted to start kind of winding down. It's been a fantastic discussion um, about 
this last part that you wrote about TJ about uh, uh, antimeme as some voidal, indefinite conceptual black hole into whose field we might be pulled. And I, I love that image that that conjures. Yeah, I think that idea was it like if you take the term antimimeme and try to define it in its most kind of um, literal way, I think that's kind of what you end up with. This like that this that's sort of like the platonic ideal of what an antimeme could be is a um, like a vacuum, like a culture, like nature abhors a vacuum, but maybe the antonyme is that that vacuum, that cultural or natural vacuum. Um, and 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 one way, like you can kind of um, okay, like I, I brought this up, you can kind of imagine the Hollywood depiction of the conspiracy theorist, right? He he's um, kind of obsessed and given his life over to this um this puzzle this 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 construction of 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 a reality that that he's putting together and he's and there's this this piece that he's missing that he's like given his life over to kind of like putting this this missing piece in there and that i i see as kind of like an antimeme as well like we get you just get sucked into this thing that isn't there but um another way of talking about that is I, I like to bring in Mark Fisher's um, capitalist realism, where where the reality has been so um, the kind of like market logics of capitalism have become so imminent to reality that an anti-capitalism is this voidal antimimetic black hole into which one can be drawn into never to surface and never to kind of come out the other side. Um, there's a, there's a, there, I think Fisher's realism kind of gets at this idea in a, in a, in a, in a sense where um, to try and commit to this project against capitalism is, is this, uh, this indefinite antimimetic black hole. The, the, that's just kind of where my mind takes those ideas though, yeah. Uh, the, the phrasing makes me think of H.P. Um, Lovecraft and the you know, literature of these uh, dark, monstrous, specifically unthinkable things right. uh, that hover at the edge of our reality. And there's a sense in which those, you know, in, in the Hollywood form, if somebody's taken over, you stare too long into the abyss and it stares back into you, the character gets the black eyes, somehow the void is coming forward into the world. And it's terrifying. It should feel monstrous. It's off-putting. And yet at the same time, it's very promising, right? There's something about the inhuman that mediates between our different narrow understandings of the human. And this goes to the, you know, the colonial question of the other and the other's othering of the self and all these sorts of things. Everybody has a sense that the normal and human thing is, is uh, sourced in their reality tunnel. And there's all these other reality tunnels. And between them, the thing that you reject that doesn't allow you to access all those reality tunnels is something like an inhuman element, something like a fundamentally alien element. Mm. And it, it, it's, it's off-putting, but it's also attractive simultaneously. And so it's an anti-meme, and also it has that mimetic allure uh, for people who are capable of tolerating that and who want to be able to 
get themselves beyond their fundamental uh, enclosure, beyond their world system. And I think it also holds space. And the other thing I think Lovecraft does really well is hold space for the, the complex natural richness of the world that is outside of 19th century mechanistic science. Right, the realm of the rhizome and the hyperobject and the vastly complex symbiotic dark matter multiverse, right? That's huge and vast and monstrous and exceeds linearity. And the first way it's going to show up is as a disruption or as a thwart. And that could be affective. It could be something distressing and voidal and monstrous. Right haunting. It could be something that's just a frustration in our theory, but there's fundamentally a sense of absence or thwart that is going to be both the limit and the invitation to get to a bigger universe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's beautiful. And because you said the word hyper object, I just have to throw in, you know, I think that's a very interesting connection to make, right? Because like living in the hyper object of climate change, even if we have a word to try to conceive of the hyper object. We, we can't fully, right? It's too big, it's too massive, it's distributed across such large uh, temporal spatial scales that it itself is a kind of anti-mimetic entity. Yeah, I used to, in terms of integral levels, I used to say that quarks can't see sharks, right? Sharks are made up of quarks, but a quark can't observe what a shark is. So if you were at the level of the quark, how would you signify for it what a shark is? You couldn't, but you could put something there that says everything you understand is insufficient to understand this other thing. This other thing is, is a foregrounded opacity of limitation of knowledge, but it represents your participation in something in which you are substantially embedded. Quarks can't see sharks, folks. <laughs> it's nothing else. <laughs> Great. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. This has been a fabulously intellectually stimulating conversation. Uh, any final thoughts? Yeah, again, I just I'm super happy to be here with you guys and, and really appreciate the opportunity to to talk through this stuff. I don't, I don't have any podcast experience, so this was totally new for me and it was great to, to do it with you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for convening this, Ryan, and being interested in these topics and uh, nice to have you here, TJ, and see you getting used to this space a little bit. And thank you very much for opening this up as a, uh, an opportunity for people to think towards something new under the rubric of anti-memetics. And God forbid anti-memetics becomes a meme. All right, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Cheers.